Hello, and welcome back to Our Foundations, where we dive into the core systems of our society, that of government, money, and education. Today, we are going to focus on the origins of education. We have looked at the origins of government and then of money, and so now it's education's turn. We are going to begin with the earliest skills and types of learning that started to come up out of early societies and then move into some societies that started to get more advanced. We'll move into China. We'll move into ancient Greece. We'll take a look at Rome and then the Middle Ages and Mesoamerica and finally end up in the 16th to 18th century time period, um, kind of just prior to what we would think of as more modern history, and see how things have ended up and what that evolution looked like. So let's go ahead and get started and take a look at how education was first perceived. So with early peoples, and we're talking about some of the first cities and civilizations that were coming up, and even before that, as people were more nomadic, and even as they started settling down in agrarian societies, um, in these time periods, there were not formal schools. The parents didn't send their kids off to school every day, then go pick them up at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and have their evening time. That's just not how society worked back then. What they did was typically the mothers would take care of the youngest children and as the children started to get old enough to help out with different tasks then they would Um, typically the little girls would help with the mother in the house with the cooking and taking care of the house and sewing and all of these types of activities and trades and crafts And the boys would typically go with their dads and learn how to hunt or farm or be a craftsman, learn a specific trade, whatever it is the father did. And that is typically the way things went, where children would start to come of an age where they could help out. And usually this was very young. I mean, this could be as early as four or five years old. And they could still help with little things. They could carry things around or just help out a little bit. And so that's what they did, and that's what they learned. And as they spent time with their parents, they would learn about the history of their peoples, and they would learn some basic skills in general. They'd learn life skills, and mostly they would learn the trades and the crafts and the knowledge that were needed to run a family and to be independent in that society. And so that's the earliest forms of education. Now, when we get to around 3500 BC, we see writing start to emerge. And first off, when writing emerges, we have lots of things that start happening. We start having laws that are written down. We start having accounts that are written down and histories written down and stories and accounting and just all these different things. And so these are very beneficial to society. They're very beneficial to the government. They're very beneficial to tradesmen and merchants. They're beneficial to anyone that goes to the marketplace, which is just about anyone. And with this being the case, 
people need to learn how to write and how to read. So literacy begins to be in high demand. So as this starts to happen, we start seeing teaching and education go beyond just the family unit because oftentimes maybe the parents were not literate, but they wanted their children to be literate. Or as the children got a little older, they wanted to get into a job that in some way involved writing or reading or likely both. And so they would go to somebody who could teach them these things. And when they would do that, typically there would be some sort of barter or exchange or payment made where the parents would pay to have their children taught or the children might perform some sort of service or duty for the teacher in exchange for learning how to read or write. Sometimes this was more um, more like what we would think of as job training or job shadowing, where maybe a young boy would go with a merchant, and as he went along, he would help and do all the things that the merchant needed done, But in the meantime and during the process, the merchant would help the child learn how to read and write and things of this nature. And um, so that's more how that type of education started to evolve. And you got literacy that became more common. And as that happened, then you start having parents and families that then know how to read and write. That's becoming more and more common. And so, therefore, they are able to teach their own children, and we start to see all these different types of education come up, where you've got um, the parents teaching, you've got kind of job shadowing, you've got hired teachers and professional teachers, you've got all different ways that typically children are learning these skills. And it's not just literacy, but if a If a young man wants to learn how to be a blacksmith, then he's going to, even if his father's not a blacksmith, that's not a requirement, he can still become a blacksmith if his father's a farmer. But what he'll have to do is he'll have to go to that blacksmith and make an exchange where typically he would be his apprentice for a certain amount of years and the blacksmith would teach him the trade in exchange for the labor and service of the young man or the child. So these are the ways that education started to spring up and evolve in these societies as society started to spring up and evolve all around the world in different regions, in different ways, different cultures. They all typically handled it a little differently, but in general, these are the kind of origin stories of education as we would think of it. As we look at more specific accounts in different cultures and societies, the subjects that we see start to come up as kind of common subjects that are being taught and learned in many different cultures and places and cities and regions. We see religion, literacy, soldiering, craftsmanship, mathematics, and arts. So these are probably the most common subjects that are being taught throughout the world, and many places would kind of switch out a few things and add a few things and that kind of stuff, but we see these as some common subjects that are taught regularly in many different societies and civilizations um, of the more earlier time periods. So another big impact on education, we had the family unit, we had literacy, Um, the other really big one is religion. So... If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense that 
most religions have a religious text. And with that, of course, you would need to learn how to read that text. You would need to learn how to study that text. You would need to learn, ideally, how to write that text so that you can make copies and pass it along and do sermons or teachings and all these different things that are involved with being very religious and learning more about a religion. So you start to need scribes and clerics and priests and people of this sort, and they need a specific education to learn not only literacy, but to learn how to study and understand these religious texts. So um, the probably most common one would be Israel, and you had the Bible that they would study. Um, It wasn't typically a formal Bible as we would think of it, but they did have their ancient stories and accounts and the books that we see in the modern Bible. Most of those Old Testament books did exist in early times, and they were studied, and they were used in an educational format. And people that did study this had to go through a more formal education so that they could understand and teach and learn. And we see that the Muslims have the Quran. We see that the Egyptians had many different texts and many different gods. In India, they had the Veda. And so you've got all these different cultures with all these different religions, and they all required some sort of education, especially for the higher classes and the priest classes, but also often for even just the commoners. Even if this was not necessarily a formal education or literacy or anything more specific, they were still teaching the commoners about the texts and the concepts and the ideas, and they were getting this religious education, if nothing else. So to look at a specific culture, um, let's look at China, because around 1000 B.C., we see that they have a more formal education system. They have five national schools that are in existence at this time, and all these schools teach some basic content and subjects. They have what they call the six arts, and those would be rites, music, archery, charioteering, calligraphy, and mathematics. So, they have a formal education system that they're starting to use to an extent um, around, like I said, around 1000 BC, so long time ago. You also had Confucius that came around around 500 BC, and around that time, before and after him, you have this large influx of philosophers that are coming up um, all over the place in China and many of their different regions, and A lot of these ideas really helped to influence thought. Um, You had some philosophers and some teachers and groups that would, they were thought of as more of a luxury for the rich, where um, more noble families could hire these people to teach their children or teach themselves, and it was more of a kind of noble tradition to get into philosophy. But there were also philosophers that just wandered the countryside and would talk to everybody they could find in a village and just share their ideas and their concepts and philosophies that they've thought about. And 
kind of interesting. They're kind of vagabonds that were going around. But with this, you had not only the nobles in the upper class, but also the commoners and the peasants that are being influenced by all these different ideas. And there are many different ideas. Most of them were more pacifist and uh, more focused on one's inner being and inner peace. That was kind of a core trend that um, that followed most of the philosophers that were going around this time in China. Uh, but there was a wide variety. So moving on um, from China, let's look at Greece. That was ancient Greece is a very good example of a time that education was it was very important and it was upheld as a noble thing and a virtuous thing to pursue. So in Greece, you had private education as the most common form. So this did not happen for everybody. It wasn't education for all. Uh, It was more private teachers that could be hired by families to teach their children is generally how it went. And so even though you would think this would be very exclusive, it does seem that most citizens in the different Greek city-states did have at least a few years of education of this kind where it was paid for and they did formally um, receive teaching from a specific teacher. And so we do see that this is fairly common. Most of them did not have a full educational background like we would think of today that would go from the time they're six years old to the time they are gaining their independence. But a few years is enough time to learn a lot of the basics, be uh, kind of brought up in the mindset of learning and how to learn. I will input an exception here, and that would be that of Sparta. Many of us have heard of Sparta as the ultimate fighters of the ancient world, and that they were. And they did receive plenty of formal education, but it was military training at the time of seven years old, where many children actually died before they saw their teenage years. Very harsh and very strict, very disciplined. Many weren't even literate, though. So this military training is very different than the educational systems and the learning that was occurring in many of the other Greek city-states. So with the exception of Sparta, we are looking at uh, ancient Greece. And like I said, even though people only got a few years generally of more formal teaching, they did learn how to learn. And that was a very important concept that was taught by many of the Greek philosophers and many of the teachers, because if you could learn how to learn, then you can learn on your own, and you can learn just about anything you want. So let me um, give you a few quotes here that kind of get this point across by names that you've probably heard of before. Um, Probably the least popular would be Margaret Mead. Um, She said that children must be taught how to think, not what to think. Moving way back to Plutarch, we see that he says, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Um, Let's go to the poet Robert Frost. I am not a teacher, but an awakener. And going back to ancient Greece with Plato, 
Do not train a child to learn by force or harshness, but direct them to it by what amuses their minds, so that you may be better able to discover with accuracy the peculiar bent of the genius of each. And finally, Leonardo da Vinci. Study without desire spoils the memory, and it retains nothing that it takes in. So we see that many people over the ages have this mentality that learning is very important, but it's more of something that should be intrinsically motivated and that a student should be able to pick up and explore and discover themselves, not just have it crammed into their heads by one specific teacher in one specific way. And that was more of the philosophy of education around these time periods. So in ancient Greece, and this is around 387 BC, we believe, uh, we see Plato establishing the academy. And we read a quote from Plato. We know roughly how he feels about education. Um, He started this academy where it was mostly philosophers and people interested could come and learn together and discuss together and meet up in the city center and learn so that they could get a good education. Mainly what they studied were philosophy, the sciences, and astronomy. And the way it was set up, roughly, was that you had kind of these senior members as well as junior members. And so what would happen would be the junior members would come in and they'd participate in discussions with the senior members, and the senior members would help lead them in their thinking and learning and understanding, and the junior members would interact with them as well as interact with each other and start to wrestle with a lot of these concepts and these problems, and through this format of how they are learning, they're able to gain understanding and knowledge and an education in these different fields. So there was a fee that was charged in order to come and learn here. And they, like I said, participated more in discussions, though, and problem solving more than paying a specific teacher to teach them specific things. And so that's how the academy was set up. In general, we do see that the type of learning that was taking place, like I explained earlier, was more discussion and logical arguments. And this is called dialectic learning. And this is typically how people were learning. They were having discussions, they were doing problem solving, they were articulating specific arguments and debating them for the sake of knowledge and learning, not just to prove that they were right, but to actually learn from these debates and learn from these discussions. And that was kind of the context that we see education evolving in around this time. To see a pretty clear view of how Plato viewed education and educational methods, we can look at what he wrote in his dialogues about the trivium. So what the trivium was, was a breakdown of basically how to learn. Plato broke it down into the three aspects of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. 
So the way this worked, um, let's use the obvious language example here, is that first, someone would have to learn grammar. They would have to learn words. They would have to learn adjectives, subjects, verbs, um, how a sentence was formed and how ideas can be written down and put together and organized, that kind of stuff. So it's more the basic mechanics in a sense of language and grammar, and that's the grammar aspect. So then the next step, once you've mastered this, is logic. And this is where the dialectic learning comes into play here. When you learn the logic of language, then you more understand the meaning. You understand how the words and concepts relate to each other. You can pull out themes out of a book or out of a monologue. And you can really basically just understand um, the words and concepts that are presented to you and that you are looking at and studying. So that's the logic aspect. Now, the final aspect is the rhetoric. So rhetoric would be basically expressing specific ideas and making convincing arguments and swaying someone to your side or point of view. Um, it's basically how do you take this grammar and logic and present it and use it and really work with it? How do you do something with it? And that's the rhetoric aspect. So again, when we get to the dialectic learning that they did, where they had a lot of discussions and they talked back and forth and posed questions, they were using this method. They had learned the grammar, they understood the logic aspect, and they worked on that and built that. And they did this mainly through rhetoric. And as they did, they would learn more and more and get better and better at the rhetoric aspect. So this does not only apply to language, however. Um, this applies to pretty much everything. Plato basically put down a way for us to learn, just in general. So if we use just a random example, it's one I've heard before, that is that of a car. So imagine you go out to the garage, you try to start your car, and it doesn't start. Well, you could call the mechanic and pay someone to fix it. But let's say you don't want to and you want to try to learn and fix the problem yourself. Well, you could use the trivium method to do this and to go about it. So first you have the grammar, which is the individual parts and pieces. So first you need to look at the car and look at the chain of events and chain of parts that lead to starting the car. So you know that there's a battery, you know that there's an engine, you know that there's a starter and an alternator, and you might know roughly what these things are, but you just look up specifically what they do and how they connect and how you get from twisting a key to the car starting. So you learn what the individual pieces are that are associated with the starting of the car. It's not an infinite number, and it's not even in the hundreds. It's probably more like a dozen or so pieces that are very important to starting a car. And you can learn what those are. You could look that up yourself and learn the grammar aspect of the problem. Now, once you do that, and as you are doing this, you focus on the logic side, the second step in the trivium. And with the logic side, you are understanding how these parts and pieces work together. So you're not only seeing what a battery is and what an engine is and what a starter is and what an alternator is, you are understanding how 
the battery works and how it's charged and how it feeds and how the starter works and the ignition and how they work together and what the process is. Um, you are understanding how these pieces work together to get your car started. And you can do that. That's something that any of us could do nowadays, especially with the internet. It's probably not all that hard. Um, and so you learn the logic aspect. Now, the rhetoric aspect of basically putting this to use would then involve you taking what you've learned about the pieces and what you've learned about how they all work together and you apply it to your problem with your car. And you start to see that, well, I know it's not this and I know it's not that and I know it's not that, but it could be either this or that. And so based on what you've learned and based on what you know and understand, you've narrowed the problem down and you can actually work on the specific problem, test the different options and probably go ahead and fix your car. And you were able to do that without being a mechanic and without being a specialist, um, as long as it's a fairly common problem and not some weird, obscure thing, you can probably figure it out by using this trivium method. And you can do that with any subject or any problem in the world. And that is the point, is that Plato designed this method for learning that really works and can be applied to anything. And that's what he used and promoted, and this was going on in the academy, and it spread into ancient Greece and got fairly popular around this time. Um, around the same time, you also have gymnastics and athletics that were very important, um, especially in the Greek city-states. Uh, music and poetry were very big, as well as drama and history and the core literacy. Um, is still a very important aspect and subject to learn. So these are the subjects and the areas and the ways that we see people learning in the Greek times. Moving on to Rome, we see a, another government that had some more formal schools that they set up and that they educated their citizens through. Now, this is still not a common education for every citizen. These are schools for paying customers, and they are typically used by the more wealthy, the merchants and the traders and the nobles and people in government, these types. But this is still a fairly large portion of the population, and an interesting aspect of the Roman schools was that progression was based on ability. So it wasn't just how much you paid and what you signed up for and what the parents thought their children should do. A lot of it was based on the ability of the children. The Romans believed that, in general, people had an inborn gift of learning and if you could spot an individual child that had this inborn gift of learning and that excelled in learning itself, then they would make it a point to make sure that that specific child got more training and more advanced training and education and moved on through the system. And that's how they kind of assessed different children and students. Now, I'm sure you did have plenty of times when a rich nobleman just paid a little extra and got a little more education for it. But um, we see that the general concept that was going on around that time in Rome in these um, schools was that 
they were looking for specific traits and specific students that excelled because not everyone is equal when it comes to skills and abilities and intellect. So they could pick these specific people out and oftentimes kind of funnel them into government positions because Rome was very big on their government system. And they could get kind of the best of the best and groom and prep specific people this way. We also start to see the first universities start to come up out of the Roman Catholic Church. So they started these universities generally to teach clerics and to teach them how to read and study the Bible and how to really understand some of these very complex concepts that exist there. It's everything from morality to even the sciences and the aspect of learning itself and just even digging into kind of these ancient cultures as well as specific languages. And there's just such a broad kind of gambit that you have to run when you are trying to get very deep into the Bible from a Roman Catholic position. And so, obviously, they needed, these priests would need a very strong and robust education for this, and that's where we see universities start to spring up is out of this need and this demand. So, moving on into the Middle Ages, we see that there were many universities. Um, they were mostly religious, but there were a few that were not. There were some secular universities that, although they did typically teach religion, they weren't specifically religious institutions for teaching and training priesthood or people to specifically be a part of the formal religion. Um Typically, we see that these are private institutions and that they did cost money. Now, if you were a clergy member, then you typically had this paid for by the church, and so you weren't personally responsible. But there were, like I said, some secular universities that did require individuals to pay themselves. We also see that there are many private teachers that are around in the Middle Ages that would take on pupils and students and give more formal teaching to. Um, we also had many tutors that were going around, and they would come to a house of typically a nobleman and teach their children um, some of the basic subjects as well as some more complex teaching if the nobleman chose to pay for it. As for what they were studying aside from the religious issues and those topics, we see another connection back to the trivium that we discussed um, back with Plato and the Greek city-states and their educational methods. We saw that the trivium was the grammar, logic, rhetoric step and way of learning. Well, what happened is around the Middle Ages, we see this method reemerge, and with it, we see a second layer that is basically built on top of that. And so the trivium in the Middle Ages starts to be used as a prerequisite for the quadrivium. And the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And the way it is described is that 
Arithmetic is number. Geometry is number in space. Music is number in time. And astronomy is number in space and time. And that's kind of how they broke it apart. They believed that the trivium and the quadrivium is what an individual needed for the learning of the seven liberal arts of classical antiquity. And that was their educational method, was they basically learned how to learn through the trivium, and then they learned more of the specific subjects and working more with numbers rather than words with the quadrivium. And that was their mentality for education in those times when you're looking especially at the more secular universities and schooling. Again, you still see that education is not for everyone. Um, You still had the peasants that were typically still being educated in their young age, similarly to a lot of these early civilizations where they're just learning trades and they're just learning from their parents and that is their education. And, you know, in general, that worked. And they would learn how to survive and they would learn a trade so they could make a living and it was okay. But they weren't receiving, typically, this more robust education that would help them thrive. So we see these class distinctions that are still... They're very evident here. Um, Another interesting culture that we can look at is in Mesoamerica. So first, the Aztecs. Now, the Aztecs were one of the first civilizations to have compulsory schooling for everyone. And the way they set this up was kind of interesting. From the time they were born till the time they were 14, they learned in more of a supervised homeschooling setting. So they were homeschooled by their parents, but it was supervised by officials to make sure that they were learning the correct things and in the correct way. They typically learned what are referred to as the sayings of the old. And so these are more sayings and proverbs and fables that would teach certain lessons and teach certain concepts. And that was the bulk of their education in their very early years. Now, then they would get more practical teaching as well as military training, or if they were a child or individual that showed exceptional ability, there were more advanced education opportunities that were typically afforded by the authorities. So another civilization that was close by were the Incas, and they also had a basic education for the populace, and this was a more formal education that they gave to everyone. And then they had a separate higher quality education for royalty. So we see this same theme here. Um, It might play out a little differently, but it's the same theme of having this major class distinction where the bulk of the people get general education and the upper crust gets this more elitist education where they learn a lot more and probably um, are able to use that education much more than this just basic amount that the commoners get. Now, moving into the 16th to 18th centuries, and we get a little more modern, 
we start to see that state education started to grow and became more popular. One of the earliest was that of Russia. So all the way back in the 1700s, we see that Russia implemented a general education for everyone. This was one of the first systems that was paid for completely by tax money, and it was also compulsory for everyone. And so it was good in the sense that it was giving an education to everyone. And this is a new concept, roughly. And it's, it's good that even the commoners and those that don't have the money to pay for it are still able to get their children a basic education. Now, there's a bit of a catch because um, this model is known as the Prussian education system. And let me give you a quote from an author and a former teacher, John Taylor Gatto. He was the teacher of the year in New York and New York City. And when he retired, he um, gave many speeches and came out um, very against the education system. And uh, he did make many references back to this Prussian education model that started in Russia in these times that we're talking about here. But it was it's also the basis for the education system that we have in America. Now, what he says in one of his books is that this system was intended to teach harmony, obedience, freedom from stressful thinking, and how to follow orders. So the way he explains it is that during the Napoleon Wars, Prussia was soundly defeated in many cases that they didn't believe they should have been defeated. And as they looked into it more and more, they saw that their soldiers and their citizenry were very well educated, and this was a good thing. However, they thought for themselves a little too much, and they were a little too questioning of their orders and had their own ideas. And, you know, as you can imagine, this doesn't go well in a war situation where you just need people to follow their orders and follow the chain of command and do what they're told and act basically without thinking. Um, And so they came up with this system to teach especially their soldiers, but also factory workers. We start to see the Industrial Revolution start to take hold. And they came up with a system that would teach the basic people a basic education and specifically how to follow orders and work within the system and not question authority and they segmented all the different subjects into very specific um, lines. So instead of doing a broad education that connected the sciences with literature, with history, and all this stuff together and interweaving it, instead they broke it apart into very specific subjects that... um, that didn't allow the students to make a lot of these broad connections. And they taught that only an expert could really teach uh, really any subject. So you needed a historian to teach you history, and you needed a writer to teach you about literature, and that you generally weren't going to learn any of this stuff on your own. You had to go to school to learn these specific subjects in this specific way. They taught you how to think 
and this was the model that was created. Now, this does make for very good soldiers, and this does make for very good factory workers that are just doing repetitive work, and they just need to perform these simple tasks on their jobs. So this does work well, and this is appealing. Not only um, is it appealing for these reasons, it is also appealing to the governmental authorities who are now in charge of the education system because it creates this citizenry and this class of people, the masses, it's the majority of the people, who are much easier to manipulate. They are much more loyal to the government and to authority. And you don't have as much trouble out of them if they are not these free thinkers and self-educators and they're not seeking after more knowledge and more education and more learning throughout their lives and becoming more intellectual and questioning. You don't have that. And so that's what this model provides and it works out very well for many different reasons, like I said. Um, this this aspect of a general state-run education in general is followed by France and England and Japan and India and basically all of the major countries started doing the same thing. Now, many of them actually did come off of this Prussian education model. Um, some of them did not, but most did, especially like Germany, and um, as I mentioned, America later picked it up. And a lot of the, what we would think of as first world countries, they took this model and uh, made it their own and made their own versions of it. So that's going to be the last um, subject that we cover today. We see that in general, by the 1900s, that most developed countries have a state-run education system. They're mostly paid for by taxes. They are usually compulsory. And this is the milieu of the educational environment that we see ourselves in coming into the 1900s. And that's where we'll pick up the next time we do our next education episode. It'll be on the modern history of education. So let's do a brief review of everything we covered. We had education that started to come up out of the family unit and learning the different skills and trades of their parents. Then we also start seeing apprenticeships and um, more of the craftsman trades start to take hold as well. And as we see writing start to emerge, literacy becomes a big deal, and there is a large demand for accountants and government officials that are literate, and we see this higher demand for education in a more broad sense. Um, then we looked at the impact of religion and how that has been a big factor in spreading education throughout these different societies because of how necessary it is for studying specific religions. We looked at different examples in China and in Greece and Rome um, of these different subjects and the ways that they taught, um, mostly more learning how to learn and learning how to think and a big focus on dialectic learning and philosophy in Greece and a focus on a an individual's abilities and their inborn gift of learning when we go on to Rome 
And then in the Middle Ages, we saw that you start seeing universities that are starting to pop up. Um, we looked at the Mesoamerican civilizations where you start seeing compulsory schooling and education for all started to be popular. And then in more of our modern countries that we think of as our first world countries of today, we start to see that around the 1700s as Russia started implementing general education and the Prussian education system, we see that influence on all of the other countries, and that brings us to our time period today. So, this episode of the Origins of Education, combined with the episodes Origins of Government and Origins of Money, should give us a very good base and foundation that we can work off of. Our overall goal is to cover the current systems that we live in today and how they affect us today, um, but we can't do that without first learning where they came from and the different concepts and terms and origins of these systems. So we've looked at the origin stories. Next, we are going to look at the more modern history of government and money than education, and then we will be able to actually get into our current systems in modern day, and we will see some very interesting aspects and some very important aspects for us to learn about. And this will be very important to have this more background knowledge that we should have now and that we will continue and build on over the next few episodes. The next episode directly after this that we'll do will be about the themes and the concepts that have emerged um, throughout these time periods that we have covered in the origins of government money and education. And we're going to bring out some of the more broad ideas and methods and systems and look at all of these things through the lens of economics and politics and learning and things of this nature. And then we'll get back into our three-part episode on the modern history of government, then money, then education. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review if you have not done so yet. I also encourage you to look at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ourfoundations. We also have our Twitter account at Foundations PC, and our email address is ourfoundations at protonmail.com, where you can send us a message anytime you like, and I promise to read it, and 90-something percent chance I will get back to you, unless something crazy happens. Our website where I post and where this podcast is hosted is at ourfoundations.podbean.com So that's all we have and I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.